Amen. Well, good morning. Hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you and uh, get another opportunity to preach God's word to you. In the event that you didn't get to hear Jay, we're going to find ourselves in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Uh, In case you hadn't noticed, we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Galatians. We will be here through December, and so that's going to be a really good time. Um, I'd really love to uh, begin our time by jumping into the text, but before we do that, uh, i got a couple of quick updates for you or, or announcements. The first one is that if you are new, We'd love to hang out with you. We want to take you out. Coffee, dinner, lunch, you name it. Breakfast, let's go. So uh, fill out a Connect card because, again, we'd love to take you out. You can drop it off in the Connect desk, which is located in the back. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we preach through and go through books of the Bible. And so that's, that's kind of our thing. Therefore, if you don't have one, we want to hook you up. That's our gift to you. So please take one with you. And if you know someone who could benefit from having God's Word placed in their hands, you could be a blessing to them by hooking them up with God's Word. Finally, you're going to see this on the announcement video later on, but we love to a degree, repetition in some things. Uh, Later today or after service, we're having our fall membership class. And let me give you two reasons as to why you probably should attend. The first one is if you're new, if you've been with us for a couple of months, a couple of weeks, and you want to know a little bit more about our story, our beliefs, our, our values, what's up with the beards, like you should totally come and get to learn a little bit more about who we are, what we believe, and what we do. In addition to that, if you have been with Storehouse McAllen for a good chunk of time, not just the last four uh, and a half years, but if you go all the way back to what is uh, affectionately known as the Batcave or a funeral home, we could talk about that at the members class. Um, The offices above Moonbeams, the building on Harvey, all of those amazing air like places of nostalgia if the last time you attended a members class was in one of those locations you should be here this afternoon it's just to catch you up on quite frankly not just our our doctrine but also the culture in which you have been so faithful to help us create here at storehouse mccallum anyway those are all of the announcements updates that i have let's let's dig into galatians one this morning. I'd love to begin our time with a really cool story, so I hope you're ready for it because I think it's going to set us up really, really well. Uh, in the classic 1982 film Rocky Three, the Italian stallion Rocky Balboa is the reigning champion after defeating Apollo Creed in what was known as Rocky Two. In Rocky III, at the beginning of the film, match after match, viewers are watching Rocky just dominate the competition. Not even the great Thunderlips stood a chance to Rocky. Those of you who have never seen any of the Rocky movies, if this is foreign to you, you're going to have a hard time following along. But I hope, well, no, I know God's grace is really just poured on you, and you should watch the Rocky movies. Nevertheless, Thunderlips could not even stop Rocky. And if you don't know who Thunderlips, it was played by none other than Hulk Hogan. There was a problem, however, as we see Rocky go uh, have these fights opponent after opponent. There was a problem, and, and that was that the promoters were, were setting up the fights for him, meaning that his opponents weren't actually a threat. 
and uh, as a result, there wasn't really a challenge, and he really wasn't contending for his belt. And, and, and what we see throughout the film, in the beginning of the film, Rocky's arrogance just continues to grow because he's winning all of these bouts. He's keeping his championship belt, but there is no challenge. There, there is no actual contending for his title. Well, in the crowd, we come to know of Clubber Lang, who's played by Mr. T. And as he sits in the crowd, you see him grow in frustration and anger toward Rocky because he knew that the fights were a joke, and he also knew that so was Rocky. Rocky was a joke. Later in the film, Clubber Lang challenges Rocky. He fights Rocky. And in a tragic scene that is mixed with both defeat and loss, Clubber Lang beats Rocky, while at the same time, Rocky loses his longtime trainer, Mickey Goldmill. It's a very sad scene. Sure enough, as the movie continues, we eventually see Rocky contemplating life. What does this all mean? Was I really a good fighter? Was I everything that Mickey said I was? We see Rocky contemplating life. We see him humbled and that he just has nowhere to go anymore. Doesn't know what to do. In comes Apollo Creed, Rocky's former opponent. And Apollo persuades Rocky to have a rematch with Clubber Lang. But in order to have this rematch and win, Apollo argues that Rocky needs to retrieve what he calls the eye of the tiger. Apollo then trains Rocky in the gritty gyms of L.A. so that Rocky would go back to the basics, so that he would go back to the roots of why he does what he does and harness, once again, the eye of the tiger. In short, Rocky needed to learn how to actually contend for his title. Well, just like Rocky needed Apollo to help him regroup and refocus on his identity and what was central to him as the Italian stallion, the Galatians needed the Apostle Paul to help them to regroup and refocus on the centrality of the gospel. Galatia was a small Roman province that consisted of uh, small groups of peoples and towns, and essentially it was an area that was filled with churches that were planted by the Apostle Paul. You can visit that in Acts 13 and 14. So when Paul is addressing the Galatians, he's not necessarily addressing one particular church, but instead a region. It would be as if Paul wrote a letter to the valley and not just McAllen. He is addressing several churches in this region. If you have never read through the, Gala the letter to the Galatians, you'll, you'll uh, quickly learn as we go throughout this that uh, it is a very strong and passionate letter from the Apostle Paul. Because as we will see, Paul learns that the Galatian Christians are being lured away from the truth of the gospel by what he calls a different gospel. Not just another gospel, but a different gospel, a false gospel. He talks about that in verse 6. And so as we encounter this letter, Paul doesn't waste any time in addressing the Galatians in two, I think, appropriate ways. He addresses them strongly. He gives them firm words. Some would even call them harsh words. In 
chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells them, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's angry at them because they are embracing and turning to a different gospel. While at the same time, Paul also addresses them pastorally with examples such as Galatians 4, where he says, You are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's desire for the Galatians throughout this letter is for them to be enamored by Jesus and to be captivated by the person and work of Jesus. This desire is shared by other writers of the New Testament, such as the Apostle John. In 3 John 4, he writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. One of the main objectives of the letter is for Paul to help the Galatians realize that they must not only deny the false gospel that is being teached, or a false gospel that is being teached, but in order to do so, they need to stand in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Well, then what does that mean for us? How is Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, relevant then to us. In order to discern and identify false gospels and counterfeits, we must first know the true gospel. That God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ to live the life that you and I cannot live and to die in our place for our sin only to offer us the grace of salvation that we cannot earn so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And as a result, reconciled to one another. So not only are we purchased or redeemed, but our status is completely changed because of Jesus. A friend of mine used to work at a bank and he was telling me that when he was being trained as a teller, um, they would talk to them about counterfeit bills. But in order to be trained to detect counterfeit bills, they would have them feel, look at, study real bills. The focus wasn't on the counterfeit, the focus was on the real bill. What it looks like, how it feels, so that if a counterfeit came across their hands, they knew how to identify and discern that it was, in fact, a counterfeit. As we dive into the text this morning, we're not necessarily going to just focus on what the counterfeit is, we're going to focus on the reality and the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when something comes across our screen, our desk, our conversations, we can actually tell that that is a counterfeit gospel. As we move forward in our time, I'll unpack more and more context as we move throughout Galatians. Today, I'd like to, again, just dive into our time. So let me pray, and then we're going to look at the first section of chapter 1. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. 
God, I am thankful uh, to you because of Jesus and his work done for us on the cross, the life that he lived, his righteousness that we cannot obtain, but that he has so freely given to us. God, as we examine your word in Galatians, may you reveal to us perhaps idols and counterfeit gospels that we have embraced or that we may even be turning to or the, the truth that maybe we are unable to discern the true gospel from a counterfeit gospel. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us? We know that you are present among us. We're asking that you would be at work in us. That you would illuminate our understanding of your word. And that we would depend on the finished work of Jesus for us by his grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you for this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all ready? Okay, two people, sweet. All right, it's okay. I don't care, man, I'll preach to those two. Here we go. So we're going to dive into this portion of Scripture, and, and, and we're splitting it up into two sections. We're going to be looking at gospel truth and then gospel urgency. going to try to keep it fairly simple. Gospel truth, that's verses 1 through 5, and then gospel urgency, that's verses 6 through 10. So let's begin with the first five verses. Here's what I want you to know. Paul's objective in these opening verses is simple. Check it, all right? Remember, we're looking at the true gospel so that we can discern and identify counterfeit false gospels. Paul's objective in the first five verses is simple, to start in the gospel and stay in the gospel. Y'all cool, right? You get that? Start in the gospel, stay in the gospel. That's Paul's main objective in these first five verses. You're going to notice that Paul doesn't waste any time in addressing uh, the Galatian Christians. And we're going to break down verses one through five in just a minute, but we're going to give it a slightly 20,000 foot view. If you have ever read any of Paul's other letters, you will notice that Paul's introductions tend to be fairly lengthy. They include not just him introducing himself, but his role and function as an apostle. He might even identify who is with him. He may even provide a short prayer uh, along with his introduction, depending on who he's writing to. To the Galatians, it's a little different. Right? It is a little different. He doesn't waste any time in diving into some priorities, which is why we're looking at what the gospel is, the truth of the gospel, and then the urgency behind his letter, which he will transition to in verse 6. As I mentioned earlier, you will notice that Paul is passionate and he speaks to the Galatians very, very strongly. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But at a 20,000-foot glance, Paul's introduction is short, it is brief, and it is to the point, and his objective is to start in the gospel and to stay in the gospel. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. He opens up by identifying himself, Paul, an apostle. Check it. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In one line, he starts with the gospel. Right? That's not just because he's cool and because he's Paul. It's because there's urgency behind this letter. And so I wanted to focus briefly on him introducing himself as an apostle, because he does so in other letters. <clears throat> but here, it's a little bit different. So let me talk a little bit about the, uh, the office of apostle, and then we'll address uh, why Paul 
mentions this. First, the the office of apostle is an office of leadership in the New Testament. It is officially closed. It ended with the last apostle after his death. And uh, the requirements of the apostles were that that they were called by Jesus and that they had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. It's kind of some unique requirements, right? Because if we're honest... Sometimes you'll flip the TV on or maybe even check out some YouTube and someone is like, my name is Apostle so-and-so. No, you're not. You haven't seen the risen Christ. That is a requirement that we see from the pages of the New Testament. Nevertheless, that is a rant for another day. All that being said, to be an apostle meant that they were commissioned and sent out to plant churches, to establish leadership. That was their function. Paul uses his title and role as an apostle here in verse 1, not necessarily to display his authority. You see, in other letters, Paul addresses individuals or churches uh, as an apostle to kind of put up his, his authority. This is why I'm writing to you, and this is what I need you to do. For instance, when he writes to Titus or when he writes to Philemon, something that we looked at in the spring, he asserts his authority as an apostle. Here, he's not necessarily doing that. It's not absent, but he's not necessarily doing it. The reason he does it is to show that his role was not given by himself. It was not given to him by himself, but it was one from the Lord Jesus. And so if we work backwards and apply it to the way in which Paul presents it, if you, we're not going to look at this right now, but in case you're writing notes, if you were to go back to Acts 9, we see Paul's conversion where the Lord Jesus saves Paul. In Acts 9, we also see Paul commissioned by the Lord Jesus. In Galatians 2, we see that Paul is affirmed by other apostles, namely Peter and John. He calls them pillars of the faith. In essence, what Paul is doing is saying that this call, this call of an apostle, as it were, could have only happened through first knowing Jesus. That's why he opens up with the gospel. He's not necessarily spending a great deal of time in terms of his title and authority. What Paul goes on to say is that this call could have only happened through first knowing Jesus. Jesus is the one who saved me. Let's look back at verse 1 once more. That he is an apostle not from men nor through man. So it wasn't himself, it wasn't any other person who gave him this, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That is, it's a short way of him giving the gospel message. That Christ lived in his place and died, or excuse me, lived the life that he couldn't live and died in his place for his sin. And then was raised by the Holy Spirit so that he would be given this grace that he cannot earn. Doesn't matter if he became an apostle or not. At the end of the day, what Paul is getting to is that, hey, Jesus is the one who saved me. And this work, this call, this office, this function that I do is because Jesus is the one who called me. And it was affirmed by others. Additionally, at the end of verse 1, Paul goes on, excuse me, in verse 2, Paul goes on to say, and all the brothers who are with me. I love that because Paul is saying, hey, don't travel alone. 
The reason he's asserting this office is because one of the accusations of Paul in this letter from people who were teaching a different gospel was <clears throat> that of his character and role. And it's essentially, they were telling the Galatian Christians, hey, this dude's alone, why would you listen to him? Right? This guy's not really an apostle, why would you listen to him? He's kind of a lesser than, why would you listen to him? He's kind of a, a lone ranger. And Paul opens verse 2 by saying, and all the brothers who are with me. Paul shows that not only is he not alone, but just because he's an apostle, it doesn't dismiss accountability and community. So he's not just wiling out on his leadership. It was affirmed. He's being held accountable. But most importantly, the only way this role, this function that he has was even possible was by first knowing Jesus. So Paul starts in the gospel and Paul stays in the gospel. Christian, you need to know that the only way in which you are a Christian is through faith in Jesus. No one is born a Christian. Your life ought to bear the fruit of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The only way in which you are a Christian is because Jesus has saved you. Going into verses 3 and 5. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. So again, he's writing to a set of churches. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, 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 look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver, from the, uh, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will, the will of our God and Father. Just as Paul begins this letter by expressing the gospel of Jesus and his position as one who is called by Jesus. Paul now reminds the Galatians of what makes this salvation possible. And what makes this salvation possible is grace and peace. Grace and peace. Earlier during communion, we were talking about, hey, slow it down and sit in this grace. I want you to keep doing that. The only way in which your salvation was possible for you is through this gift called grace. Sit in that. You see, grace is unearned, unmerited, undefiled favor from God. And that by His mercy, this grace has delivered you from your bondage, from your imprisonment to sin. Look at verse 4 once more. Grace to you and peace uh, from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. So Jesus gave himself in your place for your sin so that you would be rescued from your bondage. What made that possible? Grace. It is the grace of God that has saved you, Christian. Paul adds peace. The word here is shalom, that that because of this grace that you have received in Jesus, you are no longer in opposition to God. You are no longer at war with God. You are no longer an orphan, but a son or a daughter to God because of Jesus. 
and that the safest place for, that, for the Galatians and the safest place for you to be in is God's will. That's the safest place for you to be. And so he wraps it up in verse 5 by saying, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. These gifts of grace and peace are all so that God's glory would be demonstrated. So that God's glory would be seen. Yes, you were saved because He loves you. Yes, you were saved by His mercy. And you were saved so that His glory would be demonstrated to those who are watching. So, Paul starts in the Gospel. He stays in the Gospel. Paul doesn't waste any time in presenting and concluding with the Gospel in his introduction in order to show that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone is the true foundation of our faith. So let us look to verses 6-10. through 10. Now we transition from this gospel truth or gospel clarity to gospel urgency. And this is where Paul provides excuse me, the, the, the reason behind his letter to the Galatians. It's going to be found directly in verse 6 and 7. This is probably where we will spend the most time. So let me give you, again, I'm going to continue to give you context as we move forward. As Paul writes this letter, or Paul is writing this letter because the Galatians were being lured and persuaded by Judaizers. You can learn about them in Acts 15, 1 through 5. And these were individuals who were preaching that the gospel that they received from Paul was an incomplete gospel. And that in order to obtain true favor or true salvation or true holiness was to include and adopt rites, rituals, and observances of the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision. And so as a result, Paul addresses three things in, in verses 6 through 7 that are, that are really important. I'm going to give them to you and then we'll walk through them. And so what Paul is about to address is the severity of what is happening, the speed at which it's happening, and the consideration of what is being taught. Once more, the severity of what is happening, the speed at which it's happening, and the consideration of what is being taught. Let's go with the first one, the severity. In verse 6, Paul opens by saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. As the Judaizers are preaching this false gospel to the Galatians, here's what the Galatians are doing. Number one, they are deserting Jesus. They are turning away from Jesus, his word, and his work for them. In other words, they are unable to identify the true gospel from a counterfeit gospel. And so they are deserting Jesus. They're not only being tempted, they're being lured and enticed to ultimately turn away from Jesus. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 6 <clears throat> that you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. For now, the word different here is really important. 
So if you're taking notes, you could underline or highlight it. He says, turning to a different gospel. In other words, the Galatians are not just turning to a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. They're not just turning to a gospel that is in opposition to Jesus. They are turning to a gospel of a completely different nature. That it is void of faith in Jesus alone. Additionally, Paul continues by now addressing the speed at which this is happening. And so verse 6, once more, I am astonished. In other words, Paul is is saying, I'm perplexed, I'm surprised, I'm kind of tripping out. And the reason he's kind of tripping out is because these Galatian churches are fairly young. When you visit Acts 13 and 14, after they were planted, this, what is happening here, hasn't been too long after they've been planted. And so he's kind of tripping out. It's so fast that you are deserting Jesus. It's so fast that you are turning to a gospel of a different nature. And that's what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. That not too long after being planted, not too long after coming to know Jesus and receiving this grace and peace, you are very quickly turning away from it. And that should tell us something. That should be very telling of you and I. That when things sound good, even if things make sense, how easily and how quickly we can turn away from the true gospel. So we looked at the severity of what is happening. We looked at the speed at which it's happening. Now we're looking at the consideration of what is being taught. Again, they're being enticed to embrace the Mosaic law. But look at what Paul says once more. We're still in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Here's the important word. And are turning. The word turning is is present tense. In other words, the Galatian Christians haven't fully turned yet. They haven't fully turned their backs on God, but they are considering it. They look like they are moving that route, and Paul is catching them as they are making these considerations. You need to know that when it comes to the essential matters of the gospel— It's not only a hill that we die on, but one that we are to waste no time in addressing, which is why it is crucial to know the true gospel of Jesus. Because what's happening in the churches in Galatia is not a disagreement on programs or preferences, but an attack on priorities. And that is why there is urgency in Paul's tone toward the Galatians. And if that wasn't enough, in verses 8 through 10, to further elaborate the urgency and the severity of of what is happening, Paul puts his money where his mouth is, as he often does. Let's visit 8 and 9. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
Paul says, if I or the people I'm with or anyone else preaches something other than faith in Jesus alone, let him be accursed. Let him be an anathema. That was a very, very strong word from Paul. And he includes himself in that. And anathema is saying, hey, if you hear something like that, if I tell you something like that, kick me out. Get rid of me. Dismiss me. Or even, even, uh, even more serious, let me be damned. And this is a big deal, particularly in verse 8. Because he, he says, hey, if it's me or my crew or some of the other people that you hear, but he says, even an angel. I mean, I wanted to park on that because when it comes to the valley, there's a lot of spirituality in the valley. Right? But check it. Spiritual doesn't mean godly. I'm going to go slow. Spiritual doesn't mean godly. Spiritual doesn't mean sound. Doesn't mean that it's biblical. Spiritual doesn't mean Christ-centered. So when Paul says, even an angel, even when you think something or someone is as spiritual or as spiritually intellectual as an angel, if it is a different gospel, let them be damned. And Paul says, Paul says this twice on purpose. It's called repetition. And when we see repetition in the New Testament, it is because the writers are stressing or emphasizing a point of significance. So for instance, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it is because he wants you to listen because he's about to elaborate or emphasize a certain point that he's about to make. And so in verses 8 and 9, when Paul goes on to say, if someone else preaches a gospel, let them be accursed. Hey, let me tell you again, if you hear a different gospel that is not faith in Christ alone, let him be accursed, even if it's me. And then in verse 10, Paul closes by addressing through questions who he's really serving. Verse 10, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, Paul's previous life was that he was the religious one. He was the one with all of the answers. He was the one who was highly educated in God's word and went to some of the best seminaries, but he did not know Jesus. He did not know Jesus. And in light of everything he's gone through, and in particular what Jesus has done for him, but, but also what he has gone through, you know, the beatings, being shipwrecked, put in prison, left stranded, left to die for. He's saying, if I were trying to please man, why would I have gone through that? Doesn't necessarily make sense. And though I had all of this knowledge, I didn't know Jesus. And this language of Paul, where his heart's desire is for Christians to be enamored by the Lord Jesus, is consistent there are even occasions where Paul wants to deny his own salvation so that his friends would know Jesus. 
In Romans 9, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, here's a similar word, for I could wish that I myself were accursed an anathema. I wish that I was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If I could give up my salvation so that my friends would know this Jesus, I'd be down. There's anguish in his heart. And so you compare that back to Galatians 1.10. He's like, why would I... Why would I serve Jesus? This is where my heart is at. Let me tell you all that God has done. Why would I serve man? So church, I want you to think about a couple of things. So I'm going to give you some questions. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could talk about them in groups, but these are more for you. Here's the first one. Why are you a Christian? Like I want you to, to, to meditate on that question. The, the Sunday school answer isn't wrong. But do you know why you're a Christian? Do you know the true gospel of Jesus? Can you discern and identify a counterfeit? Consider some of the books that you're reading. Consider some of the posts that you have made. We're not talking about charity among other believers. We're talking specifically about the gospel of Jesus. Can you identify a counterfeit? When, not if, when it comes across your screen. When it comes across your desk. When it's an angel. When it's someone spiritual. When it's a friend, can you identify a counterfeit gospel? And finally, what other gospels beckon your attention? See, because oftentimes when we're thinking about counterfeit gospels, we're thinking about like worst case scenarios. We're not thinking even good things. Family, friends, careers, ambition relationships can you identify idols when you're serving them when it comes to the urgency of the essential matters of the gospel namely faith alone in Christ alone not only must we be able to identify these counterfeits but we must be willing to contend for the true gospel. In Jude, I think it's 3 and 4, Jude presses the church because false teachers are now in the church. And Jude goes on to say, hey, contend for the faith. The word contend is where uh, it, it means to wrestle with. It means to actually go at it. Elsewhere, Paul tells Timothy, be ready in and out of season. In other words, there is no off season for the Christian. 
be ready to contend. Not just defend the gospel, but be ready to contend. What we see in Galatians is Paul contending for the gospel. There is an attack on the gospel, and he's not just waiting to see how things are going to go. Paul goes at it. He goes on the offense. We must not only be able to identify counterfeits, we must be willing to contend for the true gospel. And that leads us to one final question. Well, why is all of this happening? Why are the Judaizers doing this? Why are the Galatians being enticed by this other gospel? This is where we'll spend the rest of our time. See, there's a lot of work centered around why the Galatians were so quickly considering a a different gospel other than faith in Jesus. And, And that's what brings about why we're walking through Galatians. So let me offer three areas of concern where the Galatians may have been struggling with, and I hope you see their relevance to to us. And the first is that many theologians and scholars uh, suspect that one of the reasons the Galatians were so quick to turn to a different gospel is because, in essence, they were looking for a spiritual or emotional fix. That's the first one that they are looking for a spiritual or an emotional fix. That is, in considering a different gospel, they believed that they would be provided with a similar or different experience that one they had originally encountered. And so what they're trying to do is replicate that experience by doing all of these other things that are actually a detriment to their health. I think I've given this example before. Uh, I'm not very good at illustrations, so I have like a pocket full of them. Here it is, right? In, in the days of strength conditioning and some, or strength training, some of, you, some of you know this, a lot of people take uh, pre-workout supplements, right? Some of you may do that. Now, uh, one of the things that you'll notice in pre-workout supplements is that there is this like caution at the back of, of the label, and it says, please do not exceed one scoop, right? And when you first take, uh, depending on what it is, but when you first take a pre-workout supplement, right, and you're getting ready to go work out, what you start feeling is this tingling in your skin, and you start to kind of get in the zone all of a sudden, and uh, you get really strong because you're very focused, right? Because uh, blood capillaries are up, whatever. Anyway, all this stuff is happening, and so you get really focused on what you're doing. That's why people take pre-workout. Now, What makes pre-workout so addicting is that experience. The tingling, beta blockers are pushing away a lot of, um, I already forgot what it's called. Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, lactic acid, there you go. Beta blockers are keeping lactic acid at bay. So all of this air and oxygen rushes to your muscles so that you get nice and focused. And what you want after that first time is to do it again. Because, oh my gosh, I've never been this focused. Oh my gosh, I can't remember the last time I was this strong. But you ignore the warning label. Do not exceed one scoop, right? And a bunch of tools end up taking more and more scoops of pre-workout so that they would replicate that original experience. Well, what ends up happening? Your kidneys can start failing and your adrenal glands will eventually become exhausted that they can't pump out that experience anymore, and basically, depending on how bad it is, your organs can shut down. Makes you think twice about pre-workout. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. When it comes to what uh, most suspect, 
The Galatians wanted a spiritual or, or an emotional fix. In other words, they want to replicate that experience again. And so they are turning to a different gospel in the hopes that it would replicate that experience. Now, when it comes to us today, many Christians, and this may be you, are looking for a spiritual or an emotional fix that goes beyond that what of Scripture teaches. Some of you are looking for that emotional high or that spiritual high. And so you will indulge or be enticed by other practices in order to experience that original experience once again. And so rather than experiencing God through His Word and among the people of God, as we so talked about for three weeks, rather than experiencing God through His Word and among the people of God, you are easily attracted to something else that promises more. And the irony is that rather than finding joy in Christ, you simply become spiritually exhausted. Your spiritual kidneys, as they were, start failing. Your spiritual organs start shutting down because you are absolutely exhausted. That's why, let me back up, that's one of the reasons why we're walking through Galatians. Because the one who is spiritually exhausted cannot identify a counterfeit gospel. The second one is a misunderstanding of sanctification. In short, sanctification is God's work in us and our response to His work. In chapter 5, Paul unpacks the role of the Holy Spirit and uh, unpacks the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And as a result of God dwelling in us, not only are our hearts transformed, but so are our desires. Namely, as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in our love for God, we equally hate our sin. That the Christian's desire is not only to be enamored by God, but to put their sin to death. And though we still desire to sin and we still have temptation to sin, the Holy Spirit dwelling in the Christian is the one who guides you and convicts you and counsels you and reminds you of the things of Jesus. Therefore, the concern around the Galatians is that because there was this misunderstanding of sanctification, they viewed grace as a license to sin. In other words, rather than putting sin to death because the Spirit resides in them, they further indulged in their sin. Christian, if you are not in the Word of God, if you're not being transformed by God, or in community as Paul was in verse 1, how are you going to be able to detect a counterfeit gospel? See, in our ability, or I should say, in our inability to detect a counterfeit gospel, our sanctification is often forfeited. And that implies a couple of things. It implies a lack of maturity on our part. It implies an understanding or a lack of understanding of God's Word and our response in sanctification. And it demonstrates that we have 
a really poor or a really good view, and I mean this negatively, a really good view of cultural theology. That is, grace is what transforms us so that we would be made into the image and likeness of Jesus as we put our sin to death and run after Jesus himself. But instead of doing that, we forfeit our sanctification and we use phrases like, well, God understands. God knows my heart. Or, I know he's always with me. Usually, when those phrases come across my desk, that means that you've forfeited your sanctification. You're not experiencing God through his word. And what's happening is that there is a distortion of grace and transformation. That when it comes to sin, oh, God's going to forgive me anyway. I, I had to. You, you didn't. You, you just didn't want to deal with the consequences. And finally, a works-based salvation. The Judaizers, in essence, were presenting a gospel to the Galatians that was works-based. That is, if they added, in essence, the Mosaic Law, as it were, to what Paul preached, then they would be saved, or now they could pursue holiness, or now they would have favor with God. Today, though not many would articulate it this way, many Christians would subscribe to a works-based salvation. Now, let me be clear on two things. The first one, works are important. However, they are a result of what Jesus has done for us. One theologian said it this way, we are saved by works, just not of our own. So works are important but they are our response to faith. Second, the problem with the works-based salvation is not only that it is not biblical, but it is a direct threat or attack on the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross. Essentially, by subscribing to a works-based salvation, what we say, should we do that, is that Jesus' work is not sufficient. Jesus' righteousness is not sufficient. To subscribe to a works-based salvation in order to earn God's love for you or to get back in His good grace, quote-unquote, is to deny the sufficiency of Jesus and the efficacy of the cross. When you subscribe to a works-based salvation, you preach with your life that the efficacy of Jesus' work on the cross is incomplete. So Christian, let me ask you, are, are there things that you are trying to add to your faith so that you would be, quote, good enough? Are, are there things that you are trying to add to your faith so that you would be cleansed? Are there things that you're trying to add to your faith so that you would be valued and affirmed? Paul's contending, his defending for this is simple. Start in the gospel. Stay in the gospel. You are a Christian because Jesus has saved you. And He has poured His grace out on to you. He has redeemed you. He has 
purchased you from your slavery to sin and has transferred you into the kingdom of his son. One of the primary doctrines that the Apostle Paul is going to contend for in this letter is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine is central to the teaching of the church. We'll speak about it at length as we walk through Galatians. If you want to learn more about it, go to our website. We did a sermon series specifically on this doctrine. That sermon series was called the Five Solas. Right, those are five Latin phrases. The Latin phrase for this doctrine is called sola fide. Right? Justification by faith alone. Moving on. This doctrine is central to the teaching of the church, saying that one is declared just or righteous. That is, one has legal standing before God, check it, on the basis of faith alone not merit or works done by them. So Christian, listen to that. You have been declared righteous, innocent, just before God on the basis of faith alone. Not your work and not your merit. You belong to Jesus. And I know that many of you often can be riddled with guilt and shame. The gospel of Jesus teaches and says that on the cross He has bore your guilt and your shame. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So, when the counterfeit gospel comes around, when feelings of guilt and shame come around, you, Christian, have the capacity, have the access, have the absolute pleasure of turning to the One who has kept His faithfulness and has called you with an everlasting love. Many of the threats that played the Galatians still affect us today. We're not immune. And unless we contend for the true gospel of Jesus, we too will find ourselves considering a different gospel. So as we close, Galatians is a call to action to stand firm in the finished work of Jesus for you. It is a call to contend for the gospel. And in order to contend, we must firmly root ourselves in the person and work of Jesus. If we're going to detect false gospels and counterfeits, then we must be enamored. We must be humble. And we must be ready by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christian, is your faith in and centered upon the finished work of Jesus for you. Let me ask you again, because y'all be thinking about lunch, right? Is your faith in and centered upon the finished work of Jesus for you? 
Is there a counterfeit gospel that you've embraced? Maybe one out of fear. Maybe one out of exhaustion. Maybe one for the sake of a new experience. What about one out of immaturity? Or perhaps today you're able to identify idols that are luring you away from the true gospel. You can turn to Jesus. His grace is being poured out onto you now. Turning to Jesus in repentance means that He meets you where you are with His grace. And if you're not a Christian, always thankful that you're here because it is an honor that you are here. And the Gospel teaches that you are a sinner by nature and choice. And it is only through faith in Christ Jesus alone that you can be declared just. That's great news for you. This, this Jesus has made a way for you to come and know God Himself through faith and repentance. So turn away from a cultural gospel and turn to the true gospel in Jesus. Church, contending against counterfeit gospels means that we are first rooted in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so incredibly thankful for your gospel because it means that we are incredibly thankful for Jesus. Therefore, as a result, Holy Spirit, would you humble us this morning? As we come before you in confession, as we come before you in confidence, and as we come before you for comfort, would you remind us of the grace for us in Jesus so that our eyes would be fixed upon Him, His beauty and His splendor. God, none of us here are immune to uh, counterfeit Gospels. Therefore, may we lay them at Your feet. May we confess them before You and repent so that our eyes would be fixed upon the beauty of Jesus. God, as we consider the work of Jesus for us, may we worship loudly, embracing His gospel, not one of man's and not one of a different nature, but the gospel of Jesus. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to You this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus. Amen.